This is Conquering Columbus. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Conquering Columbus podcast, where we interview founders, leaders, and entrepreneurs from across the city to find out how they got to where they are and what's made them successful along the way. This is your co-host, Mike, here. And today on the show, we were joined by Matt Wickhouse, founder and CEO of Finite State, a company focused on building software to help developers speed up the time it takes to check their software for security vulnerabilities. More on what we mean by that a little later, but Matt has a ton of experience in the cybersecurity and tech space. And at the beginning of the interview, we spoke with him about how he ended up as the CTO of Cyber Innovations at Battelle early on in his career. Being a technical lead of some cybersecurity related programs at the time that the board of directors at Battelle wanted to start a business in cyber. And they looked around and they said, who knows about this cyber thing? We want to invest in it. Everyone pointed at me and, uh, and they said, OK, you're going to start this thing with a partner and uh, we're going to send you to a one week business school crash course. So, you know, something about what you're getting into and then you're going to be off the races. It was quite a ride, but we basically created a startup inside of Patel. The reason I left was that we were successful. The startup was no longer a startup. It was a business unit that was functioning. Part of the reason I wanted to move on was because I wanted to do another startup because that's where I thrive and have the most fun. Later, we talk about how the threat landscape in the cybersecurity world today has become much more dangerous and connected than ever. In my career, I've never seen a, a threat landscape like this one with the Russia-Ukraine war. There has been plenty of capabilities abilities in intelligence agencies and governments to go. The canonical example is shut the power off somewhere. That is oftentimes harder to do than it sounds, but with enough effort, it's certainly possible to disrupt operations in different spots and make life really difficult. What has changed is not the capabilities, but the willingness of adversaries like Russia to use it. We have these people working in cybersecurity. All of the utilities in the US are on very high alert right now. They're working their butts off. And the cybersecurity community has found two different types of malware that were designed to go disrupt what mm -hmm. powers power plants and natural gas and pipelines and all that to go wreak havoc on those networks. We wrap up talking about finite state and the major problems they solve, as well as how vulnerabilities make their way into systems. We also spent a lot of time looking at the supply chain for the software because that's where most of the vulnerabilities come from. Most software today is not handwritten by programmers for the company that's building the product. About 80% of it comes from third party open source libraries or some supplier that built the chipset for that device also built software that goes with it. So what happens is when you're building a product, you're buying that software, you're inheriting all of the vulnerabilities that are in there. Most organizations don't have good tooling to recognize what software do we even have in here from third parties, what vulnerabilities might be there. While some of this conversation went over our heads at times, Josh and I really enjoyed our time talking with Matt and we hope you enjoy the interview as well. Thanks so much for tuning in. Let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike. We've got Josh here in the booth today. And uh, Josh just told me that you guys don't like listening to our awkward small talk. So I'm going to proceed to awkward small talk because I'm not no, going to let see, Josh stop me. They do want a weight update, though. Or what, what is our weight? 156.8 was the last time I checked. I haven't checked today. Oh, it must be nice to lose weight when you only check when you want to. Well, yeah, that's the key. The strategy is you just don't eat anything that entire day. And then you're like, oh, look, I made weight. But no, I was a little under the weather last week. So I cheated last week and just barely ate anything and made weight. So this week nice. we're back on the workout grind. I'm glad we're going the healthy route with this whole scenario. Well, I mean, you know, like, hey, when you get sick, you lose weight. That's just how it is. And everybody will just ignore Josh's terrible, I terrible I told you jokes. I didn't want small talk today. 
You yeah. brought this upon yourself. Oh, well, that's fair. That's fair. Let's get away from the small talk. Let's talk about our guest joining us on the show. So today on the show, we've got Matt Wickhouse joining us, and he is the founder and CEO at Finite State. Finite State automates product security for connected devices and embedded systems, enabling developers and security teams to ship their products with confidence. Prior to founding Finite State, Matt spent 15 years leading and developing advanced solutions to some of the hardest problems in cybersecurity with experience across the spectrum of offensive and defensive cyber operations. Notably, he was the technical founder and CTO of Battelle's Cyber Innovations Business Unit, and throughout his career, he has spearheaded complex national security programs, ranging from the detection of malicious integrated circuits in the supply chain to next-generation intrusion detection systems for automotive systems. Matt directed numerous intelligence programs related to the security of embedded and IoT devices, and he has been a speaker on the subject at security events. Today, we're going to be talking with Matt about his journey, as well as how Finite State came to be, what the future holds, and a whole lot more. Welcome to Concrete Columbus, Matt. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I feel like there's so many ways, like whenever I get to talk to somebody in cybersecurity, I feel like I could just go off on 20 different tangents. So I'm going to try really hard to stick to our scheduled outline today. To that end, we'll start with, hey, can you give us a little background on yourself and kind of how we got to this point? You know, maybe as far back as have you always lived in Columbus? And for the record, let's just go with the flow. We'll see where this takes us. There's all sorts of fun things we can talk about, especially dangerous, right now. That's some dangerous you, you just on, yeah. yeah, You just <laughs> really <laughs> opened Pandora's box. You heard how the opening of this went. Hey, it's more fun that way for everyone. So, no, I haven't lived in Columbus my whole life. I grew up in the Toledo area, a suburb called Maumee, and came down to Ohio State for school, then lived here ever since. So it's been about 20 years now. Mudhens fan? I grew up going to Mudhens games all the time. My house was so close to the stadium, I could actually walk over there. The first Mudhens stadium when it was in Maumee, <laughs> now it's in downtown Toledo and significantly upgraded. Sorry, I got to ask because everybody should know that Josh, I think, had a Toledo Mudhens hat that I think he wore to his sleep every day for like two years. <laughs> so... This big, is, I was a big hat guy. Not so much a Mudhens <laughs> guy, honestly. I do like that a new stadium's nice, but I'm from Oregon, Ohio, so oh, nice. not okay. too far. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You end up at Ohio State. What do you study when you go to Ohio State? So as I was deciding where to go to school, I was on the fence between architecture and engineering. When I was in high school, I actually worked for an architect after school. That was my after school job. And I was really into it, but I was also really good at math and science and I was debating and I wound up going into engineering at Ohio State, undecided engineering, and then moved into electrical engineering in my freshman year. But at that time, I went to a career fair and was looking for a job in national security. So I was talking to folks at NSA and CIA and Lockheed Martin. And I saw on the guide of the career fair that there was this company called Battelle, which I had literally never heard of at the time. It's right next to Ohio State's campus. But back then in like 2003, Battelle was not very well known. They tried to keep a low profile. It was this shadowy organization. So I went and talked to some folks at the career fair there, gave them my resume, and they got in touch with me the next day because there was an opening for someone to work on some modeling and simulation programs where they needed to do some 3D modeling, which is what I was doing for that architect after school. And so I had the skills and then I had the grades at the time and got in for an interview and started working at Patel about a week later. While you were in college? While I was in college. Yeah, that was the beginning of my sophomore year of college. And then I stayed on for over 13 years after that. So that's a long journey. So you finish up and you're clearly enjoying what you're doing. But sometimes the slow pace, especially of an organization that's been around for that long and has so many strong initiatives going on, can hold especially a future to be entrepreneur back and kind of drive you crazy. Were you okay for those years? How did those go? In short, I loved it. I had a great, great career at Battelle. And I was lucky, I think, but Battelle is a really kind of strange but magical place in many ways. It's very innovative. Everyone's very autonomous there. And so you can kind of make it what you want it to be. I never 
felt like speed was a problem because we were always working on really interesting, very hard problems for different government clients within the intelligence community or within the Department of Defense. And a lot of times those things needed to be built really fast to support operations. My journey, and, and we can dive into it more, was one of being a technical contributor, working on a lot of really interesting programs, doing technical work, to being a technical lead of some cybersecurity related programs at the time that the board of directors at Patel wanted to start a business in cyber. And they looked around and they said, who knows about this cyber thing? We want to invest in it. Everyone pointed at me and, uh, and they said, OK, you're going to start this thing with a partner and uh, we're going to send you to a one week business school crash course. So, you know, something about what you're getting into and then you're going to be off to the races. And it was quite a ride. But we basically created a startup inside of Patel to kind of fast forward. We had a great time doing that. A lot of success. The reason I left, you know, many different reasons, but I think the reason was that we were successful. The startup was no longer a startup. It was a business unit that was functioning. It was a PL center for the business. And part of the reason, along with other reasons related to mission, but part of the reason I wanted to move on was because I wanted to do another startup because that's where I thrive and have the most fun. And what was the problem that you were solving with that first startup? So broadly, we were looking to be what we called a national asset in cybersecurity. So Battelle is a national asset in a lot of different areas, like really hard sciences, you know, chemistry, biology, physics. And we wanted to do the same thing in cyber. And part of that was also creating a new generation of the workforce at Patel that maybe looked and had a different set of experiences than the generation before it. There were a lot of PhD scientists. The mission was transform Patel, enter a new business, which was cybersecurity. And broadly, I would say like signals intelligence, cybersecurity, and a couple other things related to national security. And create a profitable business at the same time, which is kind of funny to say instead of a nonprofit, but you know, it has to be putting money back into Patel in the long run. So we did that. We did it in, in several different areas, both working with private sector customers like the automotive sector, and then a lot of national security work with you know, many different missions. I'm happy to talk about some of, some of that and can't talk about most of it. <laughs> to the extent you can, I'm curious, because it's just such a broad stroking industry, at least it seems from the outside. I'm, I'm fairly confident I'm ignorant, but then also it's still got a kind of a curtain behind it, right? Because not a lot of people like, I'll, I'll admit this and I'm super embarrassed about it, but I was talking to these telecom companies lately and they're talking to me about VoIP and all these other things. And I got off one of them. I'm like, I don't even know how a telephone works. And I'm like, <laughs> this is crazy. Well, how a telephone works today is also very different than how it used to work too, because mm -hmm. it, you know, most of it's routed through IP now. And how that works is way more complicated than how old analog telephone lines used to work. So where we focus, actually, we focus in a couple areas in the team at Patel. One was in embedded systems and security and intelligence programs related to those things. So really, when I talk about an embedded system, I mean anything that's actually a computer but doesn't look like a computer. So it's not a laptop, not even your smartphone, but maybe your smart TV, or maybe the router in your house, or maybe a PLC that's controlling some process at a power plant or a connected vehicle. Those mm -hmm. are all different types of embedded systems, and they all are computers. But especially back 10 years ago, 15 years ago, most people didn't really think about those as computers and didn't think about the security of those or the insecurity or the ability to collect intelligence from those things or you know, how do you protect 
mm-hmm. those things that are that are very different. And so where we were really, really good, world-class, was in kind of working in that intersection of hardware and software security, where all of these different embedded systems came together. And, and that's what we now talk about as the internet of things. And that's where we spend a lot of our time. And that kind of dovetails nicely into talking about finite state, right? Because this is a lot of the technology that you guys are working with and working with clients on, right? Yeah. So I would say where I gained my insights into the problem, into the cybersecurity market, into the opportunities that existed there happened at Battelle in Mm -hmm. in my career there. I was working at the forefront of a lot of cybersecurity work within, you know, intelligence agencies, within really sophisticated organizations. And so I got to see where the real problems were Mm -hmm. and where the opportunities were. I I was very lucky in that many times I got to look at systems the way an attacker does. And that's where finite state came from was in a recognition that all of these devices are just growing exponentially. We're relying on them more and more and more. And one of the other reason I wanted to leave and start finite state was I was seeing this asymmetry where if you looked at your laptop or you looked at your phone, every time a new version of one of those devices came out, a new version of Windows comes out, a new version of iOS comes out for your iPhone. It's actually more secure Mm -hmm. by quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And it made it much harder for attackers to go after that. Every new device that came out, especially in that time and even today, it was basically regressing in security. So all of these things that are actually more important, the things that are powering our critical infrastructure are less secure than the phone in your pocket. And that's scary. Yeah. (laughs) And that's a problem that I wanted to go help solve. I mean, one of the examples that I remember reading about was there was a group that was working on automobiles and cars. And they showed that you could hack into that computer chip in the car and then do things like trigger the brakes or turn the car wheel or like just do some really not good stuff. And then my thought was, okay, well, what if some foreign entity that had bad intentions, right? They hack, say, every single Honda in the United States and have them all hit the brakes at the same time. Like stuff like that sounds like something out of a movie, but that's the day and age we're living in, right? Some of those things are possible. Some of them are hard. Some of them are impractical, but automotive security has come a long way in a short period of time. And so the attack you're talking about was demonstrated by a hacker named Charlie Miller and uh, Chris Velasic, and they did it on a Jeep Grand Cherokee at the time, mm-hmm. which was the car I was driving, the exact model, that's which good. was fun. But That's an area that we had expertise in actually before that happened. And we had to do similarly dramatic things to raise awareness. But our goal was to do it not publicly, but within the automotive Mm -hmm. sector. So they understood what they needed to fix. One of the crazier things that we got approved at Battelle at the time was because we weren't really getting the reception we wanted from the security folks in the automotive sector. We created a summer camp in Detroit and invited mostly high school students most of whom did not even know how to write code Mm -hmm. when they started the camp. We had a week-long camp, and we invited them and the security teams from the automotive companies in Detroit. And within a week, those kids were hacking cars in a way that no one in the automotive companies believed was possible, some of which may or may not have resulted in, you know, recalls (laughs) or suspense of updates or suspense of rolling out certain vehicles because we found like really critical flaws at the time. That camp was kind of a shock to the automotive sector. I'd say. It was very effective. And 
the camp is still running now. It's actually run by SAE. It's called the Cyber Auto Challenge. They do it every year because it was so effective. And it also was at the same time training a new generation of cybersecurity people, giving them this amazing experience where I'm sure most of them have gone on into product security roles, cybersecurity roles. Yeah. The example I think of is building automation systems because we work very closely with them. They control everything in the building, right? Heat and cooling, lighting. These systems are typically on-premise, but that doesn't mean that they're not hackable and that you can't get into them and cause a lot of havoc. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. When you got the idea for the company, and maybe let's start with a overview of how finite state operates and what you do for your clients and then backing up into how do we go from just an idea coming out of Battelle or I'm not sure if that was right after Battelle, but just an idea to, okay, let's build an actual company around this. So what we do at finite state is we help automate what we call the product security testing process. And that really means we're looking for vulnerabilities in software. That software oftentimes is something that's going to get programmed into a building automation system or into a vehicle, you know, into the hardware. But we work with the developers of those products. And when they write the code, they build it, they compile it all together. Then it gets pushed into our system, which is a you know cloud-based platform that does the analysis. The analysis is really complex and computationally intensive where we reverse engineer everything that's in there automatically and look for everything from you know backdoor credentials that might have been left in there during the engineering process that you don't want in a device that's going out to market to buffer overflows based upon the control flow within some binaries that we're looking at you know pretty intense analysis work and then the results of that get fed back to the security team so they can fix the problems before the products go to market the reason that's really important is what we recognized as we started to dig into this problem a little bit more as I started looking at it early is the reason we have all of these insecure devices, there's two reasons that we have all the insecure devices. One is historically the market didn't care about security in connected products. People didn't care about the security of their Amazon Echo or the smart TV or the $30 security camera that they bought off Amazon. Consumers didn't care. Businesses weren't even really aware of the problem all that much. That changed very substantially over the last four years. That was problem number one. The second is even if a company wanted to build more secure products, they did not have the tools in place to do that for these embedded connected devices the same way they did for like web applications. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what we set out to build was to make sure that the tooling was there to allow them to build these really securely and easily. Okay, so if somebody was like before finite state or this type of solution, right? If you wanted to do that type of pen testing, you'd probably have to hire somebody full-time that is trained to hack devices like that and have them just literally, hey, beat this thing up, try and get into it. Exactly. And would take a lot longer. But because it's automated, now we have a computerized system that's going to double check all the typical stuff very quickly. It speeds up that process, reduces costs, and allows you to get your product to market faster. Yep. Should bring you onto my marketing team. (laughs) That's exactly right. So part of the reason that's so important is there's so many more devices being created. So many more companies are building connected devices and there's only so many pen testers out there and Mm -hmm. they cost a lot. Mm -hmm. If you want to try to keep up with that, it's really, really hard to do that manually. The other reason is each time 
there's a security issue or there's a new feature you want to add to your platform, you update the software and then you send the software update mm -hmm. out to all of your customers. Well, every time you do that, there's a possibility that new vulnerabilities get introduced or worse, as we saw with SolarWinds, for example, mm -hmm. hackers compromise your development environment and introduce malware into it. And then you send it out to all of your customers and then you have the worst cyber attack in history. So you have to keep up with the speed of development and speed of updates that are happening in all of these connected devices. And that's the case in everywhere from the energy sector to automotive to consumer electronics right now. And that pace is just accelerating, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there are some products that are connected to networks and they might get a daily or weekly mm -hmm. firmware update. And that's a lot to keep up with. Sure. Even as simple as, you know, we get iPhone updates from time to time. And I remember, you know, especially when there's a known issue with the previous update, it's crazy to me how many people are like, well, I haven't updated yet. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. You realize that there's a known penetration issue with the previous update. You waited like two weeks to update your phone. I'm like, I think there's still education that needs to be done to help people understand like how serious some of this stuff is. Absolutely. When it comes to your phone, I think the population has become much more aware of security on phones. Like no one wants their phone to get hacked. No one wants mm -hmm. their private data to be lost. And there's a lot of stuff that we have on our phones. When it comes to all of the other things out there, people are much less aware and it's much harder to do. You know, you look at your phone hundreds of times a day. And if something pops up on your phone saying you need to update, you're seeing it. And in many cases, the phone just does it automatically when it's mm -hmm. plugged in with your ring camera. How often are you doing that? Hopefully it's doing it on its own. If you have a different brand, maybe you have to go to the vendor's website and actually look for that update and download it and figure out a way to flash it onto that device, which might be some crazy tool that you have to run in your network. And in really extreme circumstances, let's say for a power company, they have equipment that's mounted on poles that if you want to update the firmware, you have to send linemen out and climb up poles to update the firmware for the hundreds of thousands of devices that you have. And so it's really important that those companies that are building that equipment mm -hmm. get it right. And on top of all of this, everyone's talking about the actual war going on in Ukraine. But on top of all of this is a, I don't want to call it a shadow war, but there's a cybersecurity war going on across the world with a lot of different, I mean, I just read about North Korea stole like a hundred billion dollars worth of cryptocurrency from, I can't remember the exact organization, but these hacks are going on constantly. And it seems to me that the U.S. is struggling to keep up with the speed of which a lot of these agencies are improving on their attacks. Yes. So in my career, I've never seen a, a what we call a threat landscape like this one. The game has changed quite a bit this year with the Russia-Ukraine war. And the way we like to talk about it is there has been plenty of capabilities in intelligence agencies and governments to go do things like disrupt different facilities through cyber. The canonical example is shut the power off somewhere. And that is oftentimes harder to do than it sounds. But with enough effort, it's possible to do that. It's certainly possible to disrupt operations in different spots and make life really difficult. It's certainly possible to take, you know, let's say a pipeline offline, as we saw with the colonial pipeline attack. What has changed is not the capabilities, but the willingness of adversaries like Russia to use it as mm -hmm. part of a global conflict. We have these people working in cybersecurity at all of the utilities in the U.S. are on very high alert right now and are super fatigued because they're working their butts off. But there's a real threat. And to add to that, over the last couple of weeks, what we've seen is the cybersecurity community 
has found two different types of malware very recently that were designed to go disrupt what we call operational technology, what, mm -hmm. what powers power plants and natural gas and pipelines and all that, specifically designed to go wreak havoc on those networks. And we haven't really seen much of that. There's only been one or two examples in history right. that we've seen. All of a sudden, two new ones came out that look like they're from Russia. They were caught, and we kind of know what they are, but they can still be used. And mm -hmm. so there's a lot of concerns right now about potential disruptive or destructive cyber attacks, and that's really changing the game for everyone. Yeah, I think I remember reading about this in the Wall Street Journal at some point, that these were very, very unique codes that were structured in a way that was very different from anything that had been seen previously, right? Exactly. So if I'm a Russian malware mm -hmm. author, most of my code is going to be written to target a Windows machine or target a Mac. And generally, it's going to look like ransomware. I'm going to get on there and I'm going to start encrypting some things or I'm going to get on there. I'm going to collect some intelligence on someone that the Russian government wants me to collect intelligence on. And they look similar. There's hundreds of thousands of capabilities like mm -hmm. that that are out there. For these malware variants, they're designed to get into a very different type of network, this OT, operational technology network. And they're designed to go in there and change things. They're not there to collect intelligence. They're there to take a controller offline. They're there to make you think that a sensor is reading a normal level when actually mm -hmm. it's in a critical level. That's what those capabilities are for. The sorts of things, if you've heard of like Stuxnet in mm -hmm. the past, that's what they're designed to do. They're designed to control the physical stuff that's connected to that network. We haven't seen it used to disrupt anything yet, but the fact of the matter is the Russian government funded the project that built this capability for one reason, and we've seen it in the wild now, which means maybe they're thinking about using it. Mm -hmm. So is there a way to break down the complexity into a easier to understand format? So like when I'm thinking through my head, I'm trying to understand, you know, you have hardware pieces and almost everything is driven with software applied on top of the hardware. And so your vulnerabilities can either come from the hardware element or the software and your hardware and software are either connected or they're not. So you're either going in and physically implanting some type of negative malware or some of the terminology that I'm going to mess up, or you're going remotely and then you're deploying that through the connectivity of that device. But how do you get something all the way from Russia in a code base to you know a power plant in North America? Yeah, so that's what we call the initial access vector or you know the access problem. There's a lot of different ways. A lot of our critical infrastructure lives in these, what are supposed to be disconnected or what we call air-gapped networks where they're not connected to the internet, right? You really don't want the power plant to be connected to the internet, that's a mm -hmm. bad idea. And an air gap would be something that's never been connected to the internet, correct? correct? Okay. Yeah. So let's say the NSA, mm -hmm. all of their networks are air gapped, right? You don't want top secret information, even, you know, you don't want the electrons from the internet to be able to get to right. the electrons on that network, right? That's the concept of the air gap. What we want is for most OT networks to be air gapped, but oftentimes they're not. We think they are but they're not. There's some connection in from somewhere else into a substation in order to do some monitoring or some remote maintenance, or maybe there's a bridge from the enterprise network at the utility to some OT network. And there's this, what we call the OT IT mm -hmm. convergence that happens. And so there's a lot of different pathways in. 
And then there's always the approach of, well, I'm just going to drop some USB drives around the parking lot and see if anyone plugs this into a machine they shouldn't. Or there's also where we spend a lot of time on supply chain attacks that could happen, where the initial access vector could be like what happened with SolarWinds, that you go compromise a company that's building software that goes into these air-gapped environments. You put your malware in as part of the supply chain, and then it makes its way on to those devices, and no one really recognizes that that happened. There's a lot of different ways that you can approach it, some of which are much easier than others. It's funny to me how similar it is to, like in my head, I just always draw the analogy to biology because I was a biology major in college and viruses and the human body, right? Because, you know, you can get a virus from a million different ways. And so the example I draw is that the software is the nervous system of the technology because your nervous system tells everything where to go. So it's like these viruses, like the ones you were talking about that attack Stuxnet and the operational system, it's like if you got a virus that suddenly now instead of thinking that left is left, now your nervous system, when you think left, thinks right. Mm -hmm. And all the problems that would cause for you in your day, same thing with a building or an infrastructure if this stuff got on it. Hey, everybody. Mike here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. And we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate, and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive companies. Companies, it grows a highly adaptive workforce and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. How does everything go from ideation to creation? Because it's in theory makes a lot of sense. But then you start thinking about all of these different codes that people are deploying in these complex environments and to be an expert on every single one of those environments it's going into to understand where the vulnerabilities could be in the code seems extremely overwhelming and almost impossible to some extent. But you guys are obviously accomplishing it. Yeah. So we look for the commonalities and what's actually been good for us, for defenders over the last five to 10 years is there's been almost a commoditization of the platforms that most of these devices are built on top of. So we see a lot of Linux and Android and a handful of other smaller operating systems, a lot more open source projects that are becoming more standardized. So it makes our job a little bit easier. We can recognize those things and analyze them. But what we do is we look at, you know, regardless of the hardware platform, regardless of the code that's being written, there are patterns of vulnerabilities that can always exist. Try not to get into too much deep computer science here, but the earliest types of exploits were what were called buffer overflows, where you create this buffer in memory that's 10 bytes long, and you allow an attacker to write more than 10 bytes, and it starts to overwrite the code that's next to the buffer. And then when the code is overwritten, when it goes to the next instruction, now it's running your instruction that the attacker put in there instead of the instruction that was supposed to be there. Well, that buffer overflow is a pattern that we can see in any architecture, in any operating system, in any programming language. It exists. And so we can look for that. And that's what our team does. And we do that automatically. We can look for lots of different patterns. We also spend a lot of time looking at the supply chain for the software because that's where most of the vulnerabilities come from. So most software today is not just handwritten by programmers for the company that's building the product. 
about 80% of it comes from third parties, like open source libraries or some supplier that built the chipset for that device also built software that goes with it. So what happens is when you're building a product, you're buying that software, you're collecting that software, and you're inheriting all of the vulnerabilities that are in there. But again, most organizations don't have good tooling to recognize, you know, what software do we even have in here from third parties? What vulnerabilities might be there? And am I affected by a critical one? For example, there was a big one that came out in December called the Log4j vulnerability, which it turned out every system that was using Java, which were tons of them, was vulnerable to this very severe vulnerability. Well, mm-hmm. that also was a supply chain issue. It wasn't a supply chain compromise like SolarWinds where there was malware. It was a vulnerability that had been around for a long time that was being pulled into a lot of different tools. And so those are the sorts of things that we can look for regardless of what the device is. And so you guys started with the most common to some extent and said, okay, look, we can automate these and recognize these and solve these. What is the next evolution? Is there a future where you're using, whether it's AI and machine learning or other devices to understand more than just the commonalities? We kind of have it built in today that if we find a problem in one place, we can go find it everywhere. That's by design. Machine learning, I think, works really well on a lot of different types of problems. For what we do, it's one of those things that actually machine learning doesn't help a lot because we deal with these very concrete problems. It's not really a statistical thing where machine learning is great at dealing with ambiguity. With code, with binaries, it's, you know, we need this exact pattern or this exact graph to be present and we know that that problem is there. But what we can do is scale the performance of what we're doing. We can grow and enhance the way we look at code, the way we look at binaries, the way we look at systems and find more and more and more classes of this and aggregate things up in a way that lets us really more comprehensively solve the problem. And there's a lot of data that we have to manage, which there's all sorts of innovative approaches that we have and we'll continue to build to do that, but not a ton of machine learning. There's some in some areas. And so the future overall, where is the company at today and where are you guys going moving forward? To date, we... So we're a Series B company. We've raised about $50 million in capital so far. We have about 75 people on our team distributed all over the country now. And we have some world-class customers that we're working with. We're continuing to grow quite a lot. I expect we're going to have a very good year this year. And we're going to keep growing, hopefully at a rate that everyone's really excited about. Our goal is the same goal that I've had since we started the company, which is really to make the world safer. That's why we started this is I'm not very comfortable living in a world where the most important devices are the least secure devices. And so that's where we focused our energy is on those most important devices on trying to secure those. I will feel great when I feel like we've made a really big dent in that problem. And we're doing that kind of manufacturer by manufacturer right now. And Mm -hmm. we have some great ones like Schneider Electric, for example, who's a big customer of ours and now also an investor because they love what we're doing. We need to get more and more of those sorts of companies. And when we do that, and we feel like we've dramatically improved the security posture of the world, uh, especially for the critical infrastructure, we're going to be really happy and feel like we've accomplished a lot of our mission. That seems like a great plan. And it also seems like a great place to kind of head towards some of our last questions of the show, unless Josh, you got anything else? That's all I got. All right. So unless uh, you want to explain to me how the internet works and all these other questions. We're that's, gonna, that's, gonna, well, that's a whole other conversation. Let me tell you about DNS. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first place I'll go is, do you have any advice for our listeners? And our listeners typically, right, are entrepreneurial minded, they're young professionals, they're folks who love hearing about stories that are going on in Columbus, what great companies in Columbus are doing, if that helps. So do you have any advice for those folks out there listening? 
I love what I've seen in the ecosystem in Columbus over the last 20 years since I've been here. It's been really transformative. And I think now more than ever, there are a lot of entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs who want to go start a company. My advice is find the thing that you're passionate about first. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And whether you jump right in and start a company focused on trying to solve that problem or go learn like I did over a 13 year career at one company at Patel, there's a lot of different ways to dive in and start your journey and creating a new company and running a business. Entrepreneurship is hard. Running a company is hard. You have to really love what you're doing. You have to really care about the problem that you're solving in order to get up every day and do it. Mm -hmm. I've seen examples of people who kind of just want to be an entrepreneur and don't really necessarily know what they're passionate about. Go solve the problem of figuring out what you're passionate about first and almost in any field, anything that you're super passionate about, there's some opportunity to go change it and go do that. Go do it that way. Yeah, I think that's great advice. You know, finding your passion, chasing your passion is so important. And if you're going to get up, you're going to do the 60 hour week, the 80 hour week, the holy cow, I don't know if I'm going to make payroll, then you better be happy with what you're doing. Exactly. Uh, So our last question on the show, Matt, is centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, which ties well with what we were just talking about. It's live uncomfortably. So I'll tell you too much about why we chose that one. What do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? Oh, you know, we didn't spend a lot of time on this, but I would say my life and career have been very uncomfortable in many, many ways. You know, starting a company was rocky. I was lucky to have really good investors who supported me early, but getting the company off the ground, finding the right team, uh, keeping that team in place, dealing with, you know, adversity is challenging. It's been a tough ride, but a really fulfilling one. When I think of that phrase, and I think about it in terms of company culture, because culture is so critical, especially when you have a distributed company like we do, I think about it in terms of, you know, where are there opportunities? What is the most uncomfortable for most people in a business right now? And I think that giving and receiving feedback is probably the number one. Mm -hmm. The first time you hear constructive feedback, especially if you're new to a company, you can take it really personally. You can feel super uncomfortable about it, but it's one of the things that we just ingrain in everyone. It's feedback all the time and you have to hear it. You have to listen to it. I've heard plenty of feedback that was very hard Mm -hmm. to take, but it's just one of those things. You hear it, you act on it, you get better. And if there is one thing in a business setting that makes all the difference, I think that's it. It's constant feedback. You know, the other thing I would say on that is You two are both athletes, so you know this, but there's been a, I've seen it on LinkedIn a handful of times where there's uh, someone talking about fitness and they're talking about, you know, hey, you decide to start your fitness journey. You wake up, you go to the gym and you feel like you worked out really hard and then you look in the mirror and nothing changed. And then the next day it hurts really bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then the hardest thing is just getting up and doing it again the next day, even though it hurts or taking a day and resting and then going and doing it again. Because to be successful, I think, in a startup, in a business, you have to know that even though there's this mythology that everything that happens in a startup happens overnight, it happens really fast, it doesn't. Especially like organizational change and leadership development and education and growing your team, they all happen in small incremental steps. And most of the time, they're a little bit painful each time you do it. Mm -hmm. But you kind of learn to just embrace the pain. You learn to love it if you go lift weights you kind of learn to love the burn afterwards a little bit. And that's, I think, where you need to live. It's just, I love the phrase, you have to be 
comfortable with that. I really love that point. And, you know, really anything difficult, everything I've read uh, in particular, I read a lot of stuff on Navy SEALs training, right? And they always say one day at a time, one workout at a time. It's the same at a startup, right? It's one day at a time. Let's tackle what we have today. Keep the end goal in mind. But if you start thinking too far out, you're going to get crushed. <laughs> so I think that makes perfect sense. Matt, it's been great talking to you. We really enjoy you coming here, spending your time telling us about Finite State and your story. So thanks so much. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's been great. Yeah. And Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed that interview, you want to hear more just like it, go ahead, hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you are listening on. We will release interviews just like this one every week with founders, entrepreneurs, and other leaders from around Columbus. We appreciate your support so much. We'll talk to you next week. Next week.